to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome back to the Lions of Liberty podcast. It's yet another lovely day here in sunny Los Angeles, California, because, well, that pretty much describes every day out here. I'm not trying to brag. I've got plenty of sun. I'm close to the beach. It's cool. But I also pay a pretty hefty income tax, pretty hefty sales tax. So there's pros and cons. There's pros and cons to everything. It's all a matter of perspective. And something else that's also often a matter of perspective is history, or rather how we view certain historical events and figures. You know, for the most part, here in the United States, we view history the way that it's taught to us in grade school. Basically, that history tends to say... Anything and everything the U.S. government does and says is good. Everything else is bad. (laughs) Now, I'm simplifying things a little bit, sure. But for the most part, we're taught that the U.S. has always been kind of a shining beacon of freedom. And everything that our presidents have done has been in the interest of preserving that freedom for everybody. And there's one figure, above almost any other, who we are taught to revere from the very beginning as a guy who saved the Union, who freed the slaves... And he did it all by launching the Civil War, by fighting the Civil War against the Southern states, which had declared their independence from the North, much like the founding fathers of this country had declared their independence from Great Britain the prior century. And of course, I'm referring to Abraham Lincoln, also known as Honest Abe. And every once in a while, it seems that, you know, Abraham Lincoln seems to come up again in the popular media, often associated with libertarians, many of which are often critical of Abraham Lincoln, as they're often critical of basically any president in U.S. history. And just last month, there was a segment on The Daily Show in which Jon Stewart had Judge Andrew Napolitano on his show to play a game called The Weakest Lincoln. And basically, he brought on a bunch of scholars to essentially shout down Judge Napolitano, who has expressed negative views about many of Lincoln's actions and policies in the past. So why all this hubbub about Abraham Lincoln from libertarians? What is this all about? Why are so many libertarians often critical of Abraham Lincoln? Clearly, libertarians are against slavery as people who respect individual rights. And didn't the Civil War, for bad or for good, see the end of slavery? I don't don't think you're going to find a single libertarian that is for slavery. If they are, they're clearly not libertarians. And yet many libertarians, more so than maybe almost any other ideological group, are often critical of this figure, Abraham Lincoln. So what is this all about? You know, we're going to look into this because my guest today is a bit of an expert on Abraham Lincoln. He's an economics professor at Loyola University of Maryland. He is a research fellow at the Independent Institute, as well as a senior fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute. He is also the author of several books, including two on Abraham Lincoln, which we will be discussing today, The Real Lincoln and Lincoln Unmasked. Thomas DiLorenzo, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. I'm glad to be with you. And I'm happy to have you here today. This is a subject I've kind of wanted to delve into for a while on the show here. And, you know, from an early age, we're all taught about the greatness of Abraham Lincoln, how he saved the Union, how he freed the slaves and all that stuff, invented sliced bread. 
He's generally a revered figure by people from either side of the mainstream political aisle. So why did you first become interested in further studying this figure, Abraham Lincoln, and how did this prompt you to write your two books, The Real Lincoln and Lincoln Unmasked? Well, I, uh, I was a Civil War buff, so it's all for quite a few years. It's sort of a hobby of mine. And, and, uh, and so I started reading a lot about Lincoln, and, and I found out that for his whole political career, for about 28 years before he became president, he was almost exclusively involved in the big economic debates of his time, and he admittedly said nothing about the issue of slavery until the mid-1850s. And he was the political son, so to speak, of Alexander Hamilton, which means he was a, a mercantilist. So he spent his political career, 28 years, often on involvement in politics, advocating protectionist tariffs, corporate welfare, a national bank run by politicians. And he wanted to resurrect the old Bank of the United States that Andrew Jackson had uh, defunded back in the 1830s. And so uh, I thought that would be an entree for me to say something, to write something about the real Lincoln. And because I think all of this had been mostly swept under the rug by historians. And then uh, from a libertarian perspective, I also found out that he was probably the worst abuser of civil liberties in, in American history as far as politicians go. And that's really saying something. He illegally suspended habeas corpus and mass arrested tens of thousands of northern citizens, uh, shut down hundreds of opposition newspapers, censored the telegraph, and even deported an opposition member of Congress named Clement Vallandigham from Dayton, Ohio, a Democrat, because he was his most outspoken critic in the Congress. So uh, those are among the reasons why I got interested in uh, writing about Lincoln and re researching him. And I also uh, make the argument over and over again in my writings that Lincoln actually destroyed the voluntary union of the founders because after the Civil War, the American Union was uh, much more like the Soviet Union and it was held together at gunpoint for the threat of violence, whereas it was a voluntary union at the time of the founders. Now, I want to read from the Wikipedia page on Abraham Lincoln, which I think pretty much represents the general view that most people have of him and his presidency, and you can just kind of tell me where this goes wrong. So, uh, according to Wikipedia, it starts off, Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States, serving from March 1861 until his assassination in April 1865. Nothing to argue with there. And it goes on to say Lincoln led the United States through its civil war, its bloodiest war, and its greatest moral constitutional and political crisis. In so doing, he preserved the Union, abolished slavery, strengthened the federal government, and modernized the economy. What is wrong with that statement? Well, he certainly did strengthen the federal government. War is the health of the state, and it always does strengthen the federal government, because the internal revenue bureaucracy was created. We had the first income tax. There were pervasive excise taxes and everything, and the first federal conscription law. And that certainly strengthened the government. That's certainly true. War always does. Of course, his biggest failure, as I've written in my writings, is he failed to achieve what all the other countries in the world did in the 19th century with regard to slavery, and that is, end it peacefully without a war. And that includes all the, all the northern states. There were slaves in all the states at the original founding era in America, in Massachusetts, Maine, Pennsylvania, New York. They all ended slavery peacefully. There were still slaves in New York City as late as 1853, for example, but there were no wars of emancipation. And, of course, even the, even the Spielberg movie on Lincoln last year got it all wrong. It portrayed Lincoln as a, a political genius who got the 13th Amendment passed, which finally did end slavery. That's what ended slavery. It wasn't Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. That really freed no one. 
But uh, anyway, David Donald of Harvard is the expert on Lincoln among Lincoln biographers. And in his biography of Lincoln, he writes that as far as the 13th Amendment is concerned, Lincoln did almost nothing. Even when the, the real abolitionists asked him to uh, assist them in getting votes from some New Jersey Republicans for the 13th Amendment, he refused. He refused to help them. And that's just the opposite of the story that Steven Spielberg tells in his movie. And so, so that movie, would, even though it was very popular, has grossly misled the, the people. And uh, one other point I would make is that if, if you would ever read the, the Constitution and what it says about treason, it uses the word only. It says treason is only defined as levying war upon the states, the United States in the plural, or giving aid and comfort to their enemies. And the word there is very important there because it was referring to the free and independent states. Levying war on Virginia and Mississippi and Alabama, etc., is precisely the definition of treason in the United States Constitution, which is Article 3, Section 3. And so Lincoln uh, actually committed a, a grotesque act of treason when he invaded his own country. And, uh, and those are just some of the reasons why I think that statement from Wikipedia is dead wrong. Well, going back to Wikipedia here, I, mean, I know you mentioned earlier that you know you didn't. We never really heard much from Lincoln on slavery until the 1850s, and according to the Wikipedia page I'm reading here, and obviously I don't say Wikipedia is the be-all end-all, but I think in many ways it kind of represents what people generally believe. And it, it says he returned to politics specifically to oppose the pro-slavery Kansas-Nebraska Act, which was, um, you know, which I guess was supposed to repeal the Missouri Compromise, which restricted where slavery could uh, take place. So, you know, is there any evidence that, you know, Lincoln was kind of against slavery before he re-entered politics, uh, like before the 1850s? What do we have about him, you know, his positions on slavery before that time, and how did it change, if at all, as he re-entered politics in the 1850s? Well, just about everybody was opposed to slavery in principle. Robert E. Lee, the general, you know, the famous general, wrote a letter to his daughter calling slavery a, a moral and political evil wherever it is practiced in the world. So uh, it would not be unusual, but but uh, deeds and actions are more important than words. And Lincoln really did nothing uh, with regard to the issue of slavery before he re-entered politics in the 1850s. When he first entered politics, he announced that, um, and I quote in my book, is saying that my politics is short and sweet like the old woman's dance. Those are his words. He said he's for, he's for a national bank, a high protective tariff, and uh, internal improvement subsidies, which was uh, the lingo they used in those days for welfare. That's the language we would use today. And that's why he got into politics. He, he said he wanted to be the DeWitt Clinton of Illinois in the 1830s. And DeWitt Clinton was the governor of New York State who was sort of credited with creating the spoil system and building the Erie Canal, and he's sort of a masterful public works patronage politician, and that's what Lincoln said he aspired to be. And, uh, and as far as uh, his devotion towards slavery, anyone listening can read uh, Abe Lincoln's first inaugural address online, where in it uh, he, he bends over backwards to defend Southern slavery. He and his party only opposed the extension of slavery into the new territories. In that same speech, he endorses a constitutional amendment that was called the Corwin Amendment, named after an Ohio congressman, that would have prohibited the federal government from ever interfering in southern slavery. So on the day he was inaugurated, he announced to the world that uh, he said, I have no objection to making it slavery uh, express and unconditional in the Constitution. 
uh, as long as the southern states would have kept in the Union and kept paying federal taxes, he would have been fine with slavery lasting until the 20th century. Uh, those are his words in his first inaugural address. So what would you say to people that say, you know, Lincoln was was opposed to slavery morally, personally, but, you know, just like people make excuses for everything politicians do, he had to kind of play politics, and that's why he supported the Corwin Amendment. He didn't really mean it, but he kind of had to do it. What would you say to people that try to claim that he really was opposed to slavery, but, you know, hey, it's politics. You can only do so much. One of his famous statements of Lincoln, he said that freeing the slaves would be an even worse Thing than leaving, keeping them as slaves because, you know, they had no education and, and uh, you know, they wouldn't do very well in an American society. So it doesn't really matter what he said. You know, like I said earlier, everybody was opposed to slavery in principle, just about everybody, you know, not in politics. Uh, but uh, the question is, who, who was willing to uh, step forward and do something about it practically? And Lincoln had many lessons. He had the Europeans, the British just barely 20 years earlier, had ended slavery in the British Empire peacefully with some form of compensated emancipation. They actually purchased the slaves from the slave owners to eliminate any opposition, political opposition, that would have existed and then ended it legally in the, the institution. And that's basically how New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Ohio ended slavery in the decades before the war. And New York started phasing out slavery at the end of the 18th century but it took them about 50 years to phase it out. So they didn't do a very good job there, but the British did it much shorter, five or six years. And that's what Lincoln could have done if he was a real statesman. But uh, one of the other pieces of um, baloney that the Lincoln cult, as I call it, puts out, is that when you, when people point out that these arguments of, well, he couldn't really do anything about slavery because it wouldn't have been politically in his favor to do that, they say, well, you, you have to be a politician before you can become a statesman. So they, so they call him a statesman by being because he was just another sleazy politician. And that's a good, good example of the sort of the circular reasoning that you run into perpetually whenever you read the literature on Abe Lincoln. Now, Mr. DiLorenzo, you mentioned the Emancipation Proclamation and how it didn't really free any slaves. Can you describe that a little further? Why did that not actually free slaves? It only applied to rebel territory, which means it only applied to places where uh, the Lincoln administration had no power to do anything about slaves. And besides that, the Constitution did not give Lincoln or any other president the authority to do that. That's why when slavery finally was ended, it was ended by constitutional amendment. It was passed by three-fourths of the states uh, and the houses of Congress. And so, at the time, um, Lincoln was widely ridiculed and criticized for this because you know, the whole world knew that this was just a farce, that the slaves were not going to be freed, because the document itself, if you read it, it specifically exempts all the areas of the country at the time where the Union Army was in charge. Even the specific parishes in Louisiana, where the U.S. Army was in charge at the time, was occupying, were specifically exempted, as was the state of West Virginia, because uh, Lincoln had orchestrated the secession of West Virginia from the rest of the state of Virginia, and it remained a slave state in the Union. West Virginia was the last slave state to enter the Union, and it was brought into the Union by Abe Lincoln, and it was specifically exempted in the Emancipation Proclamation from the document. And so uh, many of the real abolitionists really condemned uh, Lincoln when they said things like he doesn't have a drop of anti-slavery blood in his veins, that was William Lloyd Garrison said that. 
So it's nothing new that I have discovered that uh, the Emancipation Proclamation didn't really free anybody. Can you describe a little bit the method by which Abraham Lincoln waged the Civil War? Hundreds of years ago, wars were just kind of where two armies would meet on a battlefield, people would have picnics and, and watch it all go down, and civilians were generally left out of it. But so how did Lincoln change that? What were some of his most egregious violations in the method by which he waged war on the South? Well, uh, international law had been evolving to the point where countries all around the world, um, there was even a, a, a meeting in Geneva, uh, Switzerland, in the 1860s. It wasn't the famous Geneva conventions that people talk about nowadays. It just happened to be in Geneva at the time in the, where they... It sort of codified, different governments had codified uh, the law, international laws of warfare to basically say that civilians are off limits, bombing of cities is off limits. Everybody recognized, however, that uh, civilians will inevitably be harmed in a war, but to do so on purpose was a war crime, and then and there should be appropriate penalties, including death by hanging, of intentionally murdering civilians or, or bombing cities that are uh, occupied by civilians. And the United States was a part of that. But Lincoln reversed all of that because he waged total war on the civilian population of the South from the very beginning. All you have to do is read some of the accounts, not only of the famous Sherman's March to the Sea, but the entire war. Vicksburg, Mississippi, uh, in 1863, was bombed into a smoldering ruins. Richmond was all, almost completely decimated. There were many small towns in the South that were just non-existent after the Union Army passed through. It burned down the uh, the entire place, uh, dismantled the buildings. If you read Shelby Foote, you know the famous the famous Civil War historian Shelby Foote, the late Shelby Foote, in his famous trilogy called the Civil War, he writes an account of uh, the bombing of Atlanta after the Confederate Army had left. So there were no soldiers left there, only civilians, about twelve thousand civilians, and for four days Sherman instructed his artillery to just bomb any building where there's any sign of life. And so they were they were just massacring civilians for four whole days. And even his chief uh, military engineer, a man named Captain Poe, told Sherman uh, that this was of no military significance at all, but he kept at it because he enjoyed it. And so, and then after they did that, they kicked all the remaining inhabitants of Atlanta out of their homes. These were women and children and old men. And this was in November, uh, when, with the onset of winter, after two large armies had just, you know, scraped up every last bit of food available in the whole region. And that's the sort of thing that happened. Uh, there's even a story that when uh, General Sheridan went to Europe after the war was over to speak to the Prussians about how they waged war on, civ on American civilians, that even the Prussians were shocked. And they were not known themselves as being very sensitive toward the populations that the country was waging war with. I want to talk about this Daily Show segment that aired last month that was going around the internet. Jon Stewart hosted a segment with, he had Judge Andrew Napolitano on the show, and they called it The Weakest Lincoln, where Judge Napolitano was debating a, a fake Abraham Lincoln, and there was a group of so-called scholars that were judging the questions, and, uh, you know, really, it was obviously very rigged. They were kind of just there to shout down anything Mr. Napolitano said, but I do want to go through a few of the questions raised in this segment and just get your response to them. So, the first thing that they asked was, why did Abraham Lincoln start the Civil War? And the judge's response was, they wanted to preserve the Union to collect tariffs on southern states. And the other response from the Abraham Lincoln, the lady playing Abraham Lincoln, was, they shot first, and you don't mess with Lincoln, 
To which Eric Foner and the other scholars, you know, happily nodded and agreed, you know, they shot first and it's as simple as that. So why did Abraham Lincoln really start the Civil War? What is the problem with this they shot first thing? Well, that was considered a source of comedy central. And so these <laughs> academics like Eric Foner are, are sort of amateurish comedians in, in that uh, arena and not uh, real legitimate scholars. Uh, and but anyway, uh, all, again, all you have to do is read Lincoln's first inaugural address, where he he gave the reason for a war. He said it is my duty to collect the duties and imposts, and by which he meant tariffs. And the average tariff rate in the United States had just been more than doubled two days earlier. And so, in federal, the tariff accounted for ninety to ninety-five percent of all federal tax revenues then. So federal taxes had been more than doubled two days earlier. And here comes Lincoln in his inaugural address saying, there will be no invasion and no bloodshed. He used the words invasion and bloodshed. He said, unless a state does not collect the tariff, the duties and imposts. So he literally threatened waging war on his own country over tax collection. So you don't have to uh, look up for any sort of obscure theory about why there was a war. And by the way, um, the reasons for why states seceded is a different question altogether from the question of why there was a war, because secession per se does not necessitate war. You know, uh, Crimea just seceded from uh, Ukraine. That doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be a war over it. Maine seceded from Massachusetts during the founding era. There was no great civil war that occurred over that. The Soviet Empire crumbled through uh, a dozen or so different acts of peaceful secession. And so uh, secession does not necessitate war. And so that's why Eric Foner, the Marxist historian, uh, was just being silly and incorrect. It's funny, because I, I don't remember John Stewart mentioning that he was a, a sort of a card-carrying Marxist. He tended to leave that out yeah. of his uh, introduction. Foner himself once said that he regrets that all of his earlier uh, publications when he was a younger man we're not Marxist enough. He's actually said that. He's become even more of a Marxist in his old age after Marxism crumbled all around the world in the early 90s. Yeah, I think I read, wasn't he opposed to the breakup of the Soviet Union? Was that right? Yes. In my book, Lincoln Unmasked, I quote a magazine article that he wrote in The Nation magazine in October of 1991. And the name of the article was Lincoln's Lesson. And in this article, Eric Foner opposed the breakup of the Soviet Union. He said it was a noble experiment that no statesman should allow to happen, to allow the breakup of the Soviet Union to happen. And so he advocated uh, that Gorbachev should have done what Lincoln did and, and brought in a large army and, and you know, used violence and, and mass death to avoid the breakup of the Soviet Union. And this is John Stewart's expert. Oh, he sounds like a real peach of a guy. Uh, another objection that came up was when Andrew Napolitano mentioned that President Lincoln actually used federal marshals during the Civil War to capture escaped slaves in the North and send them back to their owners in the South, to which point all of the uh, scholars jointly shouted, it's not true, it's not true, it's not true. So what about that? Did Abraham Lincoln actually use federal marshals to capture slaves and send them back to the South? Yes, it's undeniable that, that he did. Uh, he, he, he enforced the Fugitive Slave Act. Uh, in his first inaugural address, he gave an impassioned defense of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which forced Northerners to run down runaway slaves and return them to their, their owners. 
And the scholarship, you know, both Tom Woods put out a video on his website, and I wrote a full-blown article on LouRockwell.com citing the scholarly literature on this that, that says, yes, example after example, even in Washington, D.C., right under Lincoln's nose, federal marshals were capturing runaway slaves and sending them back to their southern owners during the war in 1863-1864. So this is undeniable. And so, and it's hard for me to believe that someone like Eric Foner of Columbia University, who has been teaching Civil War history courses at the graduate level for, what, 40 years, does not know about this. And so if, if he knows about it and said, no, no, that's not true, then he's lying. Either that or he's really, uh, really incompetent if he didn't know this real straightforward historical fact about Lincoln. Mr. DiLorenzo, I'm curious what your response is is or would be to critics. I've seen a lot of people that criticize your work as being, they say you're a shoddy historian. They say that you kind of pick and choose your facts to paint Lincoln in a certain light, that you inflate his crimes and sort of downplay, you know, maybe some similar acts from the Confederacy. So what do you say to people like that, that just say that you were just out there just to make Lincoln, for whatever reason, out to be this terrible supervillain and, you know, you're not really doing thorough research? He was a terrible supervillain. He started a war that ended up killing as many as 850,000 Americans, according to the latest research. And uh, that's at a time when the population of the country was one-tenth of what it is today. So that would be the equivalent of as many as 8.5 million Americans dying in four years being killed by each other. And so, uh, you know, what's, what's to like or applaud about that? And, uh, you know, I proudly admit I'm not a historian. My Ph.D. is in economics but I can read history as well as anybody else. And I look at history through the lens of Austrian economics and, and libertarianism. And if you look at history through that, you interpret the history a little differently than the, the typical left-wing Marxist historian like Eric Foner does. And so that's why I'm different. In the, uh, and thank goodness I'm not like the other historians. Because, you know, they have an excuse for everything. What, what upsets them is that I don't buy their excuses for everything. I look at what Lincoln did, and I just state it, and uh, and I state the obvious. When he endorsed a constitutional amendment to enshrine slavery in the U.S. Constitution, I didn't spend 20 pages of my book making excuses for why politics forced him into it. I just said this was a morally reprehensible thing for a president of the United States to do, And period. And uh, they don't like it, and, and that's good. You know, if, if when the wrong people are criticizing you and hate you, you know you're doing something right. What would you say to the objection where people will say, you know, I agree with everything you're saying. I, I can't deny the historical facts that Lincoln did do all of these terrible things. He did launch this war. He did commit terrible war crimes. He suspended habeas corpus. Not arguing with any of that. But what would you say when people say, despite all of that, at the end of the day, it gave such a push to the cause of ending slavery that, you know, wasn't all of this worth it? What would you say to that? Well, there are alternative ways of ending slavery. I mean, we we had a record in the United States of peaceful emancipation up until Lincoln came along. And so, uh, you know, ending slavery, that was the way of the world, and ending slavery was through peaceful means. It wasn't using the slaves as pawns in a civil war that really wasn't about them. It was really about consolidating all political power in Washington, D.C., and creating a mercantilist empire run by big business and a government-run bank. That's basically what the Civil War was about. The slaves were used as pawns, and they were continued to be used as pawns after the war during Reconstruction. For a while, 
the white male voters of the South were disenfranchised, and all the, the adult male black ex-slaves were franchised, they given the right to vote, so they could skew the elections in favor of higher taxes, higher borrowing, higher debt, for the benefit of basically the Republican Party that ran, that ran the things in the South. And so, and then today, you know, their, their descendants are still being used as pawns by politicians of all parties. And it's, it's a real curse on America that, that I think that things have worked out this way. In fact, one of Lincoln's own generals, General Don Pyatt was his name, P-I-A-T-T, was a newspaper man in Washington, D.C. after the war. And he said that um, what happened during Reconstruction, he said that, you know, race relations were not wonderful, of course, in the South, but he said they became infinitely worse because of what happened during Reconstruction with the, you know, the male ex-slaves used as political pawns. And then all of a sudden, the U.S. government disappears in 1877, and they leave these poor ex-slaves who had been their, their pals, you know, uh, uh, defenseless against the majority white population. And so, and Don Pyatt, you know, the former general, wrote about this, you know, right when the Ku Klux Klan was getting started and, and there was all this violence against the ex-slaves in the South. And he was making the case that this probably would never have happened had we ended slavery peacefully like the whole rest of the planet did in the 19th century. Let's suppose for a minute, let's let's sort of accept the uh, historical line or the I guess the uh, the government line that we're told that the Civil War was entirely about slavery. In what situation, I guess I'm wondering, do you think that the federal government would have a right to intervene with, you know, supposed states' rights to protect its citizens? I mean, let's say the tariff stuff wasn't an issue. Let's say Lincoln legitimately wanted to end slavery and they pass a law saying, hey, slavery is now illegal, but many people in the South did not, you know, just simply refuse to free their slaves. And let's say those state governments also refused to enforce the sort of illegality of slavery. At what point, if ever, could you justify maybe not the same kind of military invasion that we had, but just maybe the federal government going in and specifically freeing certain slaves? Could that ever be justified, in your view? Well, I, I, I don't look deal with hypotheticals. I write about history and economics. I mean, uh, that's not what happens. That's not, that's, you know, nothing like that happened. Nothing like that was proposed uh, to happen. Lincoln himself said many times that his sole purpose is to save the Union and, uh, and not to do anything about slavery. The U.S. Congress issued a proclamation saying the same thing. So I don't, I don't like dealing in, in uh, hypotheticals like that. And, uh, and, and but by the way, uh, you know, the famous uh, 19th century libertarian uh, legal scholar Lysander Spooner wrote a whole book called The Unconstitutionality of Slavery about how to go about how the federal government could go about peacefully and legally ending slavery because uh, making the argument that it is unconstitutional. And but he was ignored, and after he was ignored, he wrote scathing, hateful letters to William Seward, the Secretary of State, and. Charles Sumner, the senator from uh, Massachusetts during the Civil War. And so there was a roadmap to end slavery for the federal government to step in and end slavery peacefully and legally and constitutionally, but it, they ignored it because they chose to use the slaves as political pawns in a civil war that was not about the slaves, in my opinion. One last question, if you don't mind, Mr. DiLorenzo. Uh, you know, our mission on this show is to, and as well as at our website, linesofliberty.com, is to advance the ideas of liberty. And I know you're a big libertarian as well. So how do you believe that your work on Lincoln and people really understanding Lincoln's presidency, how do you believe that this study of this advances the ideas of liberty? 
Well, Lincoln is the face of the American state, and it's just the key ingredient of so-called American exceptionalism, which American politicians for 150 years have told us it's what gives them the moral authority to do whatever they want to do, and whatever they do is, is moral by virtue of the fact that it's American politicians doing it. That's basically been the line for the past 150 years, and the whole Lincoln mythology is really the, the genesis of that. It's, re, it's really the, the moral backbone of, of the American state. I call it the moral and ideological backbone. And I think it's a big house of cards, and, and, and once, we, uh, once we disrupt this house of cards, then I think more and more people are going to be questioning the propriety of invading uh, you know, country after country all around the world uh, on the basis of uh, remaking them in our image, you know, our, our sainted image. You know, based on this idea of uh, you know Lincoln being our our patron saint, and so that's one thing. And then, and also, uh, you know, it was really the birth of statism in America. The people no longer had control over their own government because the rights of secession and nullification were ended in 1865. And another insidious thing that happened is that after 1865, the federal government became the sole arbiter of the constitutional limits on its own powers through the Supreme Court. Prior to the Civil War, presidents dis sometimes disagreed with the court, members of Congress did, and citizens of the states nullified various acts of legislation from the federal government. After the Civil War, the federal government itself had a monopoly on constitutional interpretation as it does today. And so you get, you know, one man uh, declaring socialized medicine is in the Constitution after all. Uh, how about that? It took him 200 and some years to, to discover that. Speaking about John Roberts, of course. And so that's that's the consequence. It's the destruction of federalism that was created by the Founding Fathers and the destruction of the, uh, the rights of secession and nullification, which were the key means by which Americans were meant to be the masters rather than servants of their own government. Thomas DiLorenzo, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. I greatly appreciate it. Before I let you go... Just let everyone out there know how can they connect with you, keep up to date on all your current writing. We'll, of course, link to your books in our show notes, but how can they keep track of all, everything else you're doing now? Well, I do a lot of writing on lourockwell.com, so uh, they can check out the website. And uh, if they're interested in what I've been talking about, they can read some of my past articles. There are several hundred of them there on uh, lourockwell.com. Thomas DiLorenzo, everybody. Be sure to check out his work. Have a good one. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Take care. Do you want your kids to meet the champion of the Constitution? What if there was an illustrated book that introduced libertarianism to youth through the story of Ron Paul's amazing life? What if this biography breaks down complex concepts like Austrian economic theory, the dangers of the Federal Reserve, blowback, and non-interventionist foreign policy? What if I told you this book is real and available? What if I told you that school libraries accept donations? What if you donate a copy to your local school library and give hundreds of youth the opportunity to meet Ron Paul? What if you don't? Who will? The book is Meet Ron Paul, and you can get your copy today at lionsofliberty.com slash meetronpaul. As Ron Paul has said, there can be no revolution without a revolution in education. Meet Ron Paul and keep the liberty movement moving. Agree to disagree. Yeah, it's a radio show we have on thenewamericanmedia.com every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific. Join the show. What do we talk about? Politics, religion, and spirituality. Basically anything you're not supposed to talk about in a bar. 
<laughs> You're not supposed to have these conversations inside of a bar, but we have them every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific on thenewamericanmedia.com. Join the show, offer your opinion, and let's agree to disagree, but let's have a good conversation. Hey guys, Mark Claire here, lionsofliberty.com, where we strive to advance the ideas of liberty daily. We bring you the Morning Roar! That's right, every Monday to Friday we'll have a brand new edition of the Morning Roar, where we provide a roundup of some news stories that you may not find in the mainstream media, or even in your typical social media news feed. We find stories that relate to the ideas of liberty, and provide you with our liberty perspective on them. Every Monday, we have our longest-running feature, Mondays with Murray, named after the great libertarian Murray Rothbard, where we'll examine an article or an excerpt from his works and help convey his view, along with our little spin as well. We wrap it all up every Friday with Felony Friday, where our own John Odermatt goes out and takes a look at some sort of felony. There's felonies committed every day, you know, whether it's a felony committed by the police, a politician, or even an average citizen. You can find all of this and so much more over at LionsofLiberty.com, advancing the ideas of liberty daily. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, guys, we are back after our little ad break there. Thanks for staying through it. Thanks for listening to our sponsors. Thanks for listening to me. I even stuck myself in there. You know... If you hadn't known about the history of Lincoln before today, I would imagine you certainly leave this show with a different perspective after listening to Mr. DiLorenzo. And I personally think that understanding history is very important. It's clear that a real understanding of history has to, at the very least, you know, look critically upon the figures that we often revere so much. And there is no doubt that there is a lot with Abraham Lincoln to look critically upon. He did suspend habeas corpus. He did capture slaves in the North and send them back to the South. He did have a lifelong career in which he often supported slavery. Now, like he said, he said in the Corwin Amendment, which he supported, which would preserve slavery eternally and stop the federal government from intervening in order to free slaves. Just like any other politician, Lincoln's views often seemed to shift with the winds. Now, as the public became more openly anti-slavery, as it became more of a political issue, Abe Lincoln sort of tried to use it as a political wedge. However, we can also get caught up in a lot of this stuff, get kind of bogged down into history, and especially with a figure like Abraham Lincoln, who is so closely associated with the freeing of slaves, it can tend to make, for better or worse, well, in this case, worse, (laughs) make some libertarians look bad. And I know that Mr. DiLorenzo and other scholars critical of Lincoln are not racist. There is nothing to indicate that. Quite the opposite. Many of their criticisms against Lincoln are for his racism. You know, I don't think we even discussed this with Mr. DiLorenzo, but Lincoln actually had a plan to deport blacks out of the country. Whether to Central or South America or back to Africa. That was literally something he was discussing. So he's certainly no champion of racial equality. That's for sure. Criticisms of Lincoln are certainly legitimate, but we have to remain focused on principles and hold the banner of liberty high in these discussions. You know, and often when you criticize Lincoln, people are going to say, well, at least he freed the slaves. And you know what? It is great that the slaves ended up being freed after the Civil War. Now, as we saw, 
discussing the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln himself didn't actually free any slaves. Nor did he lift a finger to see that that happened. But we all agree, especially libertarians should agree, the end of slavery is absolutely a good thing. So if not by the Civil War, how should slavery have been ended? Well, if that was the legitimate cause of the war, if Abraham Lincoln did actually want to end slavery, the way it should be done would be to, of course, declare slavery illegal, because it's an obvious violation of individual rights. And then you'd have to say to slave owners, you've got X number of days to release your slave. Maybe that should only be one day, but you know, back then it was, you couldn't just email everybody or even call or fax everybody. You had to get the word out. So in fairness, maybe you give them, I don't know, 30 or 60 days to get the word out that this is being declared illegal, that their slaves must be freed. You could still hire them and pay them a wage and allow them to stay voluntarily if they chose to do so. You declare slavery illegal, and you enforce that act like you would any other crime. That means you arrest slave owners. You put them in jail. I don't really buy this concept that people could, you know, buy the slaves back from the owners, because, you know, that almost legitimizes the idea that the slaves were property in the first place. I have a problem with that, let alone the fact that where's this money coming from that they're going to use to buy the slaves? Well, it's coming from other taxpayers who had that money extracted from them by the government, so you're violating other people's rights, too, and redistributing their money to buy slaves from people that you're trying to say aren't property in the first place, and let you're going to You're going to pay some big plantation owner for his slave? I have a problem with that. It should simply be declared a crime to own a slave. Simple. And then that crime should be enforced. Now, if certain states in the South are harboring these, you know, slave owners, you could even argue that, you know, there are ways people could go in and stop that act. Now, that is a far, far cry from what actually happened, of course. You know, launching a full-scale war against property owners all over the South because of slavery, supposedly. You know, that's not the way to go about things either. Because most people in the South weren't necessarily slave owners. The vast majority of people were not slave owners. And many, many people did not support slavery. So just the mere fact that they lived in the South should not sentence these people to death. (laughs) Should not sentence these people to being raped and murdered as the Union Army did often in the South in their prosecution of this war. The fact is, we need to hold on to principles, and we need to remain consistent. It's okay and beneficial, I think, to look back at history, take down some of these godlike, revered figures a peg or two, but at the end of the day, it's important to remain focused and keep that laser light pointed right towards the principles of liberty. That's what we aim to do here at the Lions of Liberty podcast at our website, lionsofliberty.com, which you know I'm always hyping up. So come on by. Come check us out. Check out our social media. Come interact with us. Tell me what you think of my interview. Tell me what you didn't like. Tell me who you want to hear in the future. I will listen. Facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. Hit us up on Twitter at Lions of Liberty. Google Plus, if you're that kind of guy, you can find us there too. You can even email me, Mark, M A R C, at lionsofliberty.com if you have an idea, a question, a suggestion, a way you want to get involved. We want to make this thing as interactive as possible because that's why I do this show. I want to keep these conversations going and I'm going to keep them going every single week, including next week when I have a great guest by the name of Barbara Oakley, who is going to be discussing some of her work 
on pathological altruism, on this idea of, you know, why do people support certain things on a mass scale, certain policies, certain actions? How do they justify these things, even when they can logically be shown that these policies have negative consequences? So I'm really looking forward to that guest next week, Barbara Oakley. I hope you will tune back in for that. And I hope you'll keep tuning back in every week. And above all, mostly, I hope that you will continue to live long and live free. Thank you.